Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Lisa Polizzi. And I'm Aaron Rogerson. And today we are discussing the Greek god Hermes, most commonly known as the Herald of the Gods. But Hermes has a much more nuanced and complex symbolic structure. As an archetype, he draws us into experiences of the underworld. He's a crosser of boundaries, a patron of shepherds and thieves, and a figure who inspired the alchemical hermetic arts. He's a trickster, he's full of cunning and ambiguity, and we often see that that archetype really helps to shake up static structure and rigidity. So we'll take a dive into Hermes' background, some of the mythology, and some of the symbolism that's associated with him today. Hermes is one of the Olympians, so he's one of the main 12. Um, The deities in any pantheon are always made up of a lot of different pieces and they can be very complex in this way as always it said hermes um can be thought of as the god of boundaries or traveling or journeying uh as the god of heralds but also like merchants orators um he also has some notions of being god of like the pastor or god of farm animals Mm. stuff like that so there's all these different ways that these different ideas are sort of accumulating and grouping together to form this anthropomorphized object this deity and we can see this for a lot of the olympians and again for deities in any pantheon any culture is hermes is not just one thing Mm -hmm. and it's not easy to sort of pin him down as being always he's just this thing he's just the god of heralds yeah or something like that there's a lot of different little details that are added here and there over the history of the myth that pull hermes in different directions mm. and you have to kind of wonder how are all these things related and we can understand this complexity as sort of the accumulation of collective projections over time hermes starts out as a heap of stones that is at every crossroads Mm. or is at certain places throughout the land to mark certain boundaries this heap of stones is thought of as being the manifestation of a certain kind of deity people pass by the stones and they throw another stone onto it and this thing eventually evolves into a uh more of a sculpture which is called a herm um, which is where Hermes, the name comes from, sort of stone heap, mm. stone sculpture. Um, and so this is, this is evolving over time. And as it evolves, it accumulates a lot of this projective material, essentially of, uh, people kind of have their own projection of what this God is and what he represents, which is why he'll have so many different facets of being God of merchants, God, God of uh, heroines, God of journeying, God of boundaries, um, god of all kinds of things so we're going to get into that complexity and try to unpack what is really at the core of hermes or what is what are all these different projections sort of circumambulating and what's like the psychological sort of significance of that yeah the the evolution uh, of at least tracing this idea of like the herms and the the stacking of the rocks you know ties very directly into the evolution of him as like the soul guide and the crossing of the boundaries and um, the movement between those that isn't just something that's more concrete and real, like, you know, I'm actually at a at a road that's now intersecting or crossing another mm-hmm. road. And he sort of um, rules over that, but actually that the, there's this more subtle uh, aspect of life after death and the transitions and the boundaries, the kind of veil that exists between the world of the living and the world of the dead, which of course in Greek mythology is this incredibly rich area of thought and imagination and of both conscious and unconscious material you know so many stories it's like when you die it's sort of like life 2.0 you know like oh um, Eurydice dies Orpheus wants to save her he goes into the underworld he kind of gets the permission from Persephone and Hades and can actually bring her back but of course something's happened so there's this idea of like death in at least Greek mythology, that 
carries a, a very different nuance. It isn't just, you know, death and that's it, or you're in hell or anything like that. And there are not a lot of individuals who cross those boundaries very often. And there are even less individuals who kind of mediate between those boundaries. You mean like, individuals in mythology? Yeah, yeah. In general. Yeah. Like Hercules, for example, does travel to the mm-hmm. underworld. So like that happens, yeah. but that's not Psyche a as super well. common uh, yeah. theme. Yeah, you're not supposed to be doing that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and some of the individuals who do already have these kind of like grander stories, where they go on to become something greater, like Psyche, kind of being raised up to be a goddess. But um, you know, like Hestia, I think there there's some relations between. Um, oh, I mean Hecate. Sorry, Hecate as more of this like crosser of boundaries as well, where we see more of that connection to Hermes. But you know what does it really mean for us sort of psychologically to consider both the, the movement and um, the, the sort of transgressing of those boundaries that mark both things in our material reality, but also um, areas that are a little bit more uh, sort of mystical uh, in nature. Right. And we make this point over and over again in our discussions. Um, most recently with alchemy, is mm. this idea that the external world and the internal world are sort of interwoven Yeah. in the sense that um, you can't really separate the idea of the objective physical reality of roads and boundaries, like literal boundaries in the land of like, this is my land and this is his land and there's a boundary between it or this road marks the boundary between these two different uh, city-states that's kind of a literal interpretation. And then you have this sort of internal idea of like, well, there's boundaries in within my own psychology mm-hmm. of what is conscious and what is unconscious, or there's boundaries in my transformation of like between being a child and being an adult or from being a single man to being a married man. There's like boundaries that, cr- that we cross that are sort mm-hmm. of more metaphorical. Yeah. And it's easy for us to pretend that like, well, those things aren't related at all. Like the boundary within like a literal territory um, has nothing to do with a boundary that's psychological or that's sort of metaphorical, um, but they are interrelated. And if we examine the past and we sort of try to unpack how people really experience their reality, what it was like to be conscious in the past, these things were blended together. Mm. And it wasn't as simple as having this sort of this materialistic notion that there's an objective reality. So we can, we can see how Hermes being in some sense, uh, on the roads at crossroads, um, but also being this psychopomp that travels between the, uh, the living world and the underworld. Those are related. Mm -hmm. Those are both sort of projections, um, of how we make sense of our reality. And it's not clear that we, we really treat, a boundary between two pieces of land and a boundary between two parts of life as yeah. being actually different. Mm. We're, they're sort of the same thing to us. Yeah. I like this connection with this idea of like initiation, like moving from being a child to an adult mm. in all these different forms um, or these kind of next levels of maturation that we go through and how we can think in, I think a more like classical Jungian sense that often these initiations or these movements into newer parts of ourself or being taken deeper into say like unconscious material that needs to be addressed is often led by a type of psychopomp figure. And if we're looking in a more classic Jungian sense, um, as I mentioned, I think you see those associations with like anima or animus figures. So kind of like inner feminine or inner masculine soul guides, soul guides. Um, That's what psychopomp means yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. that might even be like the translation yeah i think it's yeah like i think it's pretty guide. literal mm-hmm, okay. in that way but yeah. often the trickster the archetype of the trickster is also related to this nature of being a psychopomp because by by the essence of like their being what they do is like create transformation they sort of shift um then the narrative they break down the structure and so you have someone like Hermes, I think, playing that role often in a mythological sense, like here he is coming to support Perseus and really moving him through this like initiation of, of defeating Medusa, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that, that type of like trickstery nature that really is very paradoxical, very shape-shifting, can kind of 
um, emulate where he needs to go or where it needs to go then allows for like the birth of this new attitude and that feeling of initiation I think can be very closely related to this archetype of Hermes or the archetype of the psychopomp or the trickster so we have Hermes just to break things down a little bit we have Hermes as herald of the gods mm-hmm. we also have Hermes as god of boundaries yeah or god of traveling mm. journeys this kind of moving yeah. between places mm-hmm. and we also have hermes as the trickster mm-hmm. and there's a kind of three different like main <laughs> descriptions of hermes yeah. i would say they're all interrelated yes which is interesting <laughs> but that's kind of like who hermes kind of is and so let's, let's get a little bit deeper into hermes the figure okay. and let's go with um some of the imagery associated with hermes or the mm. symbolism what does hermes look like yeah. for instance I think you always know that you're seeing an image of Hermes because you see the Caduceus and it's such a popular, striking image. We've kind of seen it um, continued. It's continued integration in the culture past just Greek mythology, but I'll get into that. But the Caduceus, this wand that has these intertwined snakes running up it, um, you might see it also having... Um, kind of like its own wings at times, but it's it's this long wand that always has the snakes and, the, and they're moving in a kind of like double helix around each other, creating this... Almost like DNA. Yeah, yeah. DNA. And, and snakes can be interpreted, depending on which mythologist you might talk to, the, the, the snakes can be interpreted as either fighting or... Copulating. Mating, copulating. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, which are kind of interwoven in strange ways. But... Uh, the snake as a symbol is interesting, yeah. right? And we see the snake appear often when we are, when we have myths that are kind of exploring like the underworld or mm. truth. Yeah, or, or like very like primordial, um, very like uh, like core essence of very dynamic unconscious material or um, developments of of. Um, like creation mythology right, it's right. just considered like an extremely ancient symbol that can represent both like wisdom but also you have the the ouroboros and so you mm-hmm. get this notion of like cycles of life and um you know everything is where we're born from is where we return right um it, it just carries like an intense dynamic uh psychic structure the snake or the snake on the in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it gives yeah. gives the apple, or right. not doesn't give the apple, but uh, enticing tempts, them, entices <laughs> Eve to, to to take the apple, right? Um, and there's both like the kind of tricksteriness of that, the absolutely. kind of of the devil uh, and of yeah. Lucifer. I think is Lucifer's a figure. trickster. The snake is yeah. kind of like a trickster character. Like, yeah, eat the apple. Like, don't you want to have the the power of the gods? Well, I also like, think like the way it moves too. If I right. just think like in this. It just the imagery of how a snake and its body kind of shifts and moves around yeah. unlike any other animal mm-hmm. in a way is so fascinating. And like, what is that imprint on one's psyche? It definitely brings that feeling, that kind of essence or the aura of that kind of trickster nature because it it shifts and moves, it strikes fast. Um, and I think that's part of what we're dealing with when we're tapping into this kind of archetype of Hermes, especially. Um, and I think one other connection, at least personally, that I make with the the Caduceus is how it also reminds me of some of the imagery of like the the rising of like Kundalini energy and this idea of like that there's a snake like the base of the tailbone of each individual. And when you awaken this kind of like primordial life energy, it moves up a central channel and then does this kind of like double helix movement up the spinal cord, something like that. Okay. So, so the, the, the Kundalini energy is sort of like snake energy moving yeah, up the spinal cord. Yeah. 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 And that, and there's like the movement there's like a main energy channel. So you mm. might see that as like the main part of the wand. And then there are, um, a masculine and feminine or like a lunar and a solar um, energy channel that intertwine and, and where they connect at certain points is I think in theory supposed to be where chakra points are. Um, huh. And so, I mean, we'll get more into the trickster and that kind of uh, bi-gendered nature or this kind of more holistic idea of like the mixing of all of these coming together. But to me, the caduceus it evokes that as well. 
Yeah, so the snakes as Ouroboros, as chaos, the snakes mm. as knowledge or truth, because yeah. chaos contains within it often latent truth to mm. be discovered. Um, snake is sort of energy. There's kind of like that fertile, uh, revitalizing energy of the sort of reservoir of chaos that the Ouroboros represents. And that sort of double helix is very strange. And it's very strange to discover that like, that's the shape of DNA. Mm-hmm. Almost yeah. like this sort of sacred geometry of the double mm. helix is like a pretty interesting thing. But this is sort of the, the primary um, artifact that Hermes kind of wields, right? That's yeah. strongly associated with him. Yeah. I guess, uh, well, personally, what's more strongly associated with Hermes is the winged sandals. Yeah, the winged sandals. That seems like more of a stereotypical image. Yeah, and the hat with with wings as well. Right, right. I think they're all pretty stereotypical yeah, in yeah. my mind. But there's this sense of like he's very he has this lightness to him, the mm-hmm. flying nature. He can move quickly, yeah. and because he is a herald of the gods, because he's moving between these different boundaries he has a type of imagery that's really different than other gods who might kind of move in like chariots or I don't know, you know, Zeus must've like a million times just like appeared as whatever form he wanted. So, (laughs) but with, with Hermes, we see the winged sandals. Right. That's a, it's a good point that the imagery of someone on a chariot, for Mm -hmm. instance, it's like, it's very commanding. It's very in your face. Right. It's not quite as agile or nimble. Yeah. It's like, you're going to like burst through the wall. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So someone arriving on on a, on a flying chariot is like, well, look at that, like glorious Royal figure. Mm -hmm. He's like, here I am. Whereas the wind sandals, you kind of get this idea of someone who could just sort of like appear and then yeah. like slip away. And then again. And then like, Here I am. He, right, he, like right. try and catch me. And then like, right. ooh, I'm gone. Well, like, the, and there's that nature of Hermes being also like the patron of like thieves. And it's like his tricksteriness. Right, right. He needs to be sly. Right. Like from the moment he was born, we'll get into this though, that he has this nature of sort of like moving between the shadows and showing up where right, he wasn't a moment right. before. And then he's gone. Right. So a thief, if they had wind sandals, they would be like very effective. It just like Absolutely. zooming past and like, there's your wallet. Got it. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like if you were trying to steal wallets, like in a chariot, like <laughs> riding by people, it's like, <laughs> right, that wouldn't work right, right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think before we move on, there's just like one thing that I feel is worth noting is the the confusion often with the caduceus with the rod of Asclepius, which is right. a single staff with one snake wrapped around it. And I don't really know what this says about like our culture or the development of our society, but most people for some reason confuse the two because of course Asclepius well, is known as they're very similar medicine right they're very similar <laughs> but they're very people but they're, they're they're very very different and yeah. so you'll see you know asclepius is known uh for like healing and medicine and yeah. things like that um and that there are many medical symbols that use the caduceus instead of the rod of asclepius or you'll see both actually mm-hmm. um and i don't know these these things just happen accidents but in some ways they're not accidents but yeah, anyways, Hermes is not really known as like a healing god or a medical god. So just right. FYI, if mm-hmm. you see that, Caduceus is not so much about healing, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some analogous, sorry, analogous figures to Hermes in different cultures? Mercury. Mercury. This is the Roman The version. Roman. Yeah, I mean, with, with the Roman pantheon, things are always very... It's always hard to split the hair sometime, I think, because when when Greek mythology and culture started moving into the Roman world, it totally like revolutionized the way that they uh, approached these things. I, I think their gods were much more like, I don't know how to say this. They're just sort of like amorphous. They were more like these natural forces. They didn't always have as much of a of a strong story or a strong personification, I guess you might say. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was just like very much adopted over, but there's some gods who you see like, because they're older, I think like Neptune slash Poseidon is like an example of this where you see maybe like a greater Roman cultural um, line through it. But from my understanding, Mercury and Hermes seem like very, like a one-to-one and a lot of the stories are just kind of readapted to um, the Roman culture, and the names are just sort of shifted around. Um, but right. I, th- I think Thoth is the more interesting one that we get the connection to. So 
Thoth being an Egyptian god of wisdom and magic and science and art. Um, so you start to get into that that nature of the aspects of life that are kind of unknowable and unseeable, yet at the same time can be like gifted through insights or the crossing of these boundaries. Of course, Egyptian culture had this huge focus on life after death and um, also the kind of the arts or the magic that's connected to that. So you see this really dynamic link between Thoth and um, Hermes, which plays a lot into um, the alchemical development of the Hermetic arts and what alchemy was, uh, at least the more like Greek Egyptian version of alchemy. Right. So we're highlighting, uh, again, this connection between wisdom and the dead or the underworld yeah, and mm-hmm. being a trickster. Yeah. There's that connections here. Um, so Thoth is sort of a God of wisdom, but he's also connected to the dead. Mm. There's this notion of kind of like forbidden wisdom or hidden wisdom, wisdom that's buried. It could be thought of as just sort of going out into the world and uncovering the wisdom that's out there, but also like going in yourself, going into your unconscious and uncovering that golden shadow, that <laughs> notion. Um, but also the, the trickster connection to wisdom is something that, that will keep coming up is the ways in which being a trickster leads to insights or the mm. ways the trickster shakes things up. And when you shake things up, when you break the frame, when you break the way that you frame your reality and you have to reframe it or come up with a new frame, this leads to insight yeah. or knowledge. So this connection to thought is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of Hermes' main stories are a nice way to also explore more of the archetypal structure and to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, we don't always see these really dynamic, interesting myths tied to the birth of each of the gods, but Hermes, I think this is one of his classic ones and sort of expresses the the nature of the, the divine trickster that he is. So when he was born, like basically like the first day he's born, because he's a god, he's already like very conscious and can do all these different things um so he decides to go and steal apollo's kind of like heavenly royal cattle it's golden cattle aren't they like made out of gold or something like that? i don't know probably different versions express them in all different ways but you know apollo who might have then been viewed more as like uh the ruler or a patron of like shepherds and the flock um right another strange connection (laughs) it's like oh apollo is like god of cattle yeah. It's like, wait, what? Like, yeah. Apollo's another episode. <laughs> Apollo is similar another complexity. Episode. Yeah. Um, but he steals the cattle without Apollo knowing. He's a little baby. He, like, goes and in some versions, he, like, he slaughters some and makes, you know, 12 uh, offerings to the gods. And I guess, does that mean that he included himself? But anyways, um, you know, Apollo realizes that his cattle are missing and he divines, like, what happened. And he realizes, oh, it's Hermes, but before Apollo can come and catch him, he slips back into his wrappings and his cradle and, you know, he Apollo's demanding, you know, where are my cattle? And the baby did this. And the mom's like, no, 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 like, that's not possible. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the story ends with Zeus sort of stepping in and just feeling very... Um, proud i think is often how it's expressed like Zeus is just thinks it's all very funny but ultimately it's like hey hermes like give give your brother back his cattle and you know you guys make up and mm-hmm. they do um but in this process hermes creates the liar um from a, a tortoise shell and parts of the the heifers that he had killed and he strings it and he starts playing it and immediately apollo's like oh my god what is that mm-hmm. and around that time there seems to be like a shift between um, the god of the shepherd and the flock becoming Hermes. He actually like takes the cattle and he gives in exchange um, Apollo the the lyre. And of course, as a god of music and poetry and all of this like artistic beauty, Apollo uh, takes on the lyre and that becomes like a very central uh, part of his own story as well. So we see that trickster nature from the moment he was born, he was kind of running around moving through the shadows, tricking others, but in this very lighthearted way, Hermes is always ex- extremely lighthearted. Right. 
Right. And so this interesting connection between Apollo and Hermes, Apollo, not really thought of as like structure, like Apollo's not really like a fatherly figure mm. where like Hermes is like pranking like a dad figure and the yeah. dad's like wagging his finger. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? But it's more really like Apollo almost manifests this kind of like higher light of truth and beauty mm. and the idea that Hermes, the trickster kind of messing with Apollo and being a trickster and shaking things up and pranking him essentially like stealing his cattle and that this prank that he plays on Apollo actually leads to this creation of music mm. for Apollo. Yeah. It's kind of implying this, this notion of the trickster shaking up the status quo of True. things, the trickster right. showing up and being like, uh, I'm going to mess around with the inherent structure of this social scene yeah. or of whatever sort of entity is here. And by doing that, people might be like, what are you doing? Like you're, you're rocking the boat. But what happens right. when you rock the boat is it actually leads to wisdom. It actually leads to a new perspective. And right. in this case, like it gives birth to like this powerful music for Apollo. Like he gains this like inner power, it gains yeah. this sort of this insight that he didn't have before. And you can see this connected to the other trickster gods, right? Like Prometheus mm, stealing true. the fire mm -hmm. and giving it to humans is like the trickster Prometheus provides consciousness to humans. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, there's other versions of this sort of notion of the trickster um, stealing fire mm -hmm. or just the trickster leading to some sort of revelation. Yeah. Well, I think also there is a connection between trickster heroes and Odysseus, I think, is like a good example right. of this. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess he's like considered a great grandson of, of Hermes. So that yeah. immediately creates this lineage of tricksteriness. But mm -hmm. as a trickster hero, he employs these different techniques to totally shake up what has been established in like whose idea was it to, to create the Trojan horse and put the Greeks in it. And then right. they were actually able to like, you know, turn the tide of the war. It's like, that was Odysseus. It's right. like, whose idea was it to, you know, tie ourselves to the bottom of the sheep and then be able to blind Polyphemus. It's like, mm, that was Odysseus, you know? Yeah. So there's this way in which the tricksteriness, um, when it comes out psychologically, it, it makes things uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It turns things on its head. It can be very paradoxical. It can, you know, go completely, you know, a 180 from where things were going. And that can cause a lot of tension in somebody. It's, it's often why I think trickster figures on a psychological level can feel um, deeply disturbing. Yeah. But it creates the potential for like new flows, new energies, new things to unfold. So that dynamic transformation, um, usually with some, I feel like that is something that's very simple. You know, it's not like this long drawn out plan. It's almost like the trickster can come in, like snap his fingers and boom, things have changed. And then I like that kind of feeling of like, almost like the magic of the trickster. Um, this isn't like an individual who's just planning and planning away this really intricate thing it sort of just flows from the trickster archetype inside of us that suddenly everything's shaken up everything's been turned on its head and yeah. it brings transformation with it right you can kind of see this with the way that like humor works mm. almost it's like when you actually try to examine humor and say like what what is happening when something is funny like what does that even mean there is some aspect of humor that is sort of messing with the status quo or yeah. messing with the structure of reality even. So like a lot of jokes are funny because like they're putting forward some image that sort of is absurd, mm. meaning it doesn't make sense or doesn't yeah. fit in with reality very well. Um, and you can see that a little bit of messing with reality, mm. you know, like a lot of like comedies, like a lot of like funny movies nowadays, Yeah, they're not really depicting something that looks really real as much as they're sort of depicting a reality in which things are cartoony <laughs> and true. ridiculous right. and, you know, things happen that like would never ever happen in real life. Um, like, you know, in there's something about Mary is, is like a really famous comedy and there's like this crazy dog, he takes drugs and bites onto like Ben Stiller's crotch and like <laughs> he's like shaking the dog around trying to get the dog off his crotch and like and the thing is like this is like 
ridiculous. This would you, you would never believe this would happen in real life ever. <laughs> right. If someone told you like, oh, this happened to my friend, you'd be like, no, it didn't. But in the movie, in the myth of the movie, it's funny because it's messing with the structure of reality mm. and kind of creating this sort of separation right. of like messing with what is considered to be true yeah. just a little bit. And there's kind of like, there's something sort of humorous. It's like ticklish, mm. but you can also see how this can quickly turn into like horror, like humor and horror connected. Because if you take horror movies, for instance, they're also messing with the structure of reality True. and nightmarish things happening. Yeah. It's like, that doesn't seem real, but right. it's freaky. Right. And it's like just real enough. You know, right. it walks the boundaries actually. Right, a boundary, exactly. Mm, that's that, an that, interesting that uncanny idea. valley. Right. If, if something is so, so far from reality, yeah. who cares? Right. But when it's actually sort of messing with mm. you where it's like it could be real or it could mm. be fake, that's when things are funny or mm. if they're like extremely like destructuring, they can mm. be terrifying. Right. For instance, like in a, in a scary movie, if, if you'd think what would be the scariest thing would be like, a bear chasing you mm-hmm. like some monster is going to eat you right but like yeah. scary movies aren't about like bears like chasing you mm-hmm. often there's something more like um like the halloween movies right. a guy standing outside your house with a mask on staring at you <laughs> is more freaky than a bear charging you right and it's like what what's that about it's like because reality is falling apart mm. this weird figure right. outside your house with a mask on is like it's making reality fall apart into a nightmare. True. Because and it's like, ah, like what is going on? Like what's real? Right. I don't know what's real anymore. And this is right. terrifying. It's like the psychological thriller that actually like really cuts to the core yeah. versus like the type of like horror meets like comedy thriller. I'm thinking yeah. of like Deep Blue Sea for some reason. That's the one with the sharks, right? Yes. <laughs> with like and giant LL, sharks. LL cool J, <laughs> who's the cook in a gigantic <laughs> underground laboratory. <laughs> But my mind, I was trying to think of a movie where there are like big animal, like animals that are chasing people. Right. That's what came to mind. Right. But it's, it's too ridiculous, right? Like it's, it's messing with reality, but it's going so far into like a fantastical realm that we see it as like, it's kind of like a joke and mm-hmm. it's also like kind of scary at the same time. You can right. sort of imagine it, but it's just, it's not real enough. But then you think about these more psychological thrillers like Scream or Halloween movies, um, and then there's this feeling that they're actually walking the line between those boundaries yeah. in a much more skillful way. Mm-hmm. And the image that's actually coming to my mind is like having one foot in reality and having one foot in the whatever you want to say, in the horror, in yeah. the comedy, whatever it is. And I think when an individual or a project or a movie, whatever it is, can straddle that, yeah. that's like you've suddenly like constellated trickster energy in right. a really right. powerful way. Because as the as the crosser of boundaries, as someone who can fluidly move between both, mm-hmm. you have to you have to mediate an individual psyche or a collective psyches through it. Yeah. So you can't just be on one side or the other. You have to be in both. And that if we just even look at these more pop culture references, that's where things get really exciting or mm-hmm. scary. You know, I think like some of the best comedians too have one foot in reality. Like they're seeing some structure that we all seem to fit For into, sure. but then they're turning it on its head or they're revealing it in a way that like, Oh, nobody talks about this. Like that's yeah. not very PC or whatever yeah. it is. Like that's the status quo. Right. That's actually where people really get, struck in a really powerful way right right like it's funny because it's true Mm. and jokes that seem absurd but reasonable right as in like you know how much money did you spend on that burrito if you're like well i spent like 30 bucks people are like what that's ridiculous but there's something about it like it seems like it could be true Mm -hmm. it's like oh i spent three million dollars on my burrito it's like well that's not funny because it's that's so far from reality that's obviously not true. And so anyways, the playfulness of that, the playfulness of humor, yeah. the way that humor works is that it's playful and it kind of takes you out of your safety zone into some place. It kind of feels like unfamiliar and that's tickling. It's mm. sort of stimulating. And that's what play is, right? Yeah. Is traveling into the realm of chaos. So yeah. you're in sort of a realm of order. You're, everything is familiar. Everything is known. You understand it. And playfulness is sort of venturing into something you don't understand and exploring it and sort of engaging with its components 
messing with it. And that's what children do, right? And children mm-hmm. play because they're learning about their world. And so yeah. the trickster is a figure that brings someone into the world of play mm. or brings someone into the world of chaos in some sense, brings them into the realm of the unfamiliar. Yeah. And the same way that children learn by doing this, mm-hmm. they learn by being brought into the chaotic realm and having to figure it out. The trickster does this to an adult. Yeah. I played a prank on you or I shook things up and I brought you back out of your like sort of ossified adult life yeah. into the world of children. Yeah. And you're learning again now. Yeah. There's insight, there's wisdom. Well, it's interesting that we think about the trickster with this relationship to wisdom and growth because it's more subtle, I think, with Hermes as a figure, but mm-hmm. like that connection back to Thoth, I think, especially to me, uh, is really striking because it is the nature of being able to mediate these different realities, which Thoth did as more of this god who ruled over like this knowledge of like magic or sciences or art, these things that were discovered, these things that kind of enhance consciousness um, that tie you back to wisdom because it's not, he's not a God of just chaos. Some trickster gods do move in more like the chaotic realm, right? We might think of Loki as more of like a trickster God who really kind of doesn't give you a platform for feeling like you can integrate whatever trickstery energy is coming up. Mm -hmm. But Hermes and in connection than Thoth, I think have more of a, of a pillar of wisdom and depth so that what they're doing as they kind of move you between realms or as they draw you deeper into this place is that this, this birth of that new attitude is the ability to feel that there is this depth of intelligence and insight that's coming forward. And that's because something psychologically has outwitted you, you know, it's like, yeah, we can learn and transform in ways that are more like kind of being passed on like a higher wisdom from a more like, you know, uh, kind of wise, older guru type that also happens psychologically, but mm. there are ways in which the outwitting or the outplaying also is extremely revelatory and how important that is for us. Yeah. You bring up Loki and just an interesting pop culture connection is for for anyone who watched the recent Disney series Mm -hmm. on the Marvel character of Loki. um, One artifact that Loki receives in the show is a golden sword Mm. and the golden sword is one of the artifacts of Hermes. Mm. So Hermes slays Argus, the many-eyed giant with a golden sword. Mm. There's also some versions of uh, Hermes giving Perseus the golden sword in order to slay Medusa. Mm. So there's a connection there. Yeah. Loki's getting sort of the, the trickster weapon of Hermes mm. in this in this TV show. And that's actually part of the Marvel um, uh, the Marvel universe as well in the comics as yeah. well. And so it's interesting connections like that. Um, another connection that I think is interesting and I read about this a little bit is, is, is uh, Hermes connection with Anubis mm, yeah. and in terms of his function of Soul gu- guiding guide. souls yes. to the afterlife, right? Yes, That's definitely. one thing Hermes does. Yeah. one thing Anubis does. Yeah. And there's also this strange morphing of Hermes and Anubis mm. into uh, Hermanubis. It's like Hermanubis. There's actually, there's actually like sculptures. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, and you get this weird crossover of deities, right? And that's, yeah, what I, I mean, that's, yeah. that's what's so interesting. And this can, you know, help you understand what deities and pantheons actually are as they're sort of the anthropomorphized ideals of the culture. And, you know, Egyptian and Greek culture obviously crossed over because Alexander the Great conquered mm-hmm. Egypt. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyway, so Hermanubis is like a strange morphine of Hermes and Anubis into the same figure, meaning they're, they're in some ways they're interpreted as being the same God okay. in weird ways, which is yeah. interesting. Um, but both Anubis is also thought of being someone who uh, is connected to like the investigation of truth, mm, but also the like going into the afterlife. Yeah. And so like there's the, the connection there that's it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's useful I think to to start to do that kind of like comparative mythological analysis because you start to see that the patterns reveal a kind of inherent archetype, and there is never going to be like a perfect one to one. You know, as you compare the gods, that there are going to be certain essences of uh, of a say like looking at Hermes where you can see it represented both in Thoth and in Anubis and you can do the same thing 
by looking at um, like Zeus as an example. It's like, well, what does he relate to in Norse mythology? It's like, oh, oh, Odin, right? As like the ruler of the gods was like, oh, but he's also a lightning god. So then you have Thor as well. So right. you, you can do this comparison. And I think there's no one exact right answer. You have well, to like right. allow for the multiplicity. I mean, Hermes is also connected to Odin in weird yeah, ways. Yeah. Cause like they're both connected to, to the dead and they're both like seekers of hidden yeah, knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. A little trickstery Anyways. too, Odin. Um, yeah, 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 for sure. I think one point I wanted to circle back to is because you brought up Loki and you brought up the new Disney series. Oh no, spoiler alert! <laughs> We're always doing spoiler alert. I mean, <laughs> sorry, we, guys. Should, we should be more careful about this. Like, we shouldn't just say spoiler alert and then immediately say the spoiler. Right. Okay. Um, this is a spoiler alert for this the Loki TV series. So alert. if you want to stop listening. Because you don't want to ruin the series and stop listening now. But right. what were you going to say? So in the in the Disney series, mm -hmm. Loki effectively meets all these different versions of himself. Yeah. Uh, like there's this whole uh, multiverse of Lokis. And there's mm -hmm. like a crocodile version, an old man version, young kid version. Yeah. And the real main other version that he tangles with and really kind of is drawn to is the female version mm -hmm. of him. Yeah. And there's the a really central, very important aspect of the trickster archetype, um, especially viewed as Hermes, where there is the blending of the masculine and the feminine. As right. that crosser of boundaries, as the mover between worlds, it it shows like a wholeness of the archetypal expression that doesn't just move on like one side of the the dichotomy or the other and so the hermaphroditic nature of tricksters right. is very important yeah. because we i mean each individual encompasses all of these energies inside of themselves mm -hmm. like the the masculine or the feminine to me are just it's a universal expression and we have these varying different degrees of it within us. Um, but if we first and foremost look at the term like hermaphrodite, there's actually right. some origin to that. There's some story, um, right. which is that Hermes and Aphrodite had a child who was a male and was um, merged with a woman and was then uh, and and the child's name was already hermaphroditus mm -hmm. but that term that idea of like a masculine and feminine being merged together came from the idea of hermes right which i find very very interesting right and just in, in case you're not making a connection hermaphrodite is probably a term you've heard before and yeah. hermaphrodite is hermes aphrodite right. hermaphrodite yeah and so that's where it's come from yeah and the crossing of boundaries is another good illustration of this is um you know the crossing between male and female or masculine and feminine energy uh is another way of interpreting the archetype of hermes mm. and it's not just that's just one example but there's also ideas that hermes is sort of a god of because he's a liminal yeah, god yeah there's sort yeah. of this idea of the like traveling back or forth back and forth or cycling between two polarities mm -hmm. um which again can really relate to like the the dialectic or sure. the transcendent function yeah. or going between conscious, unconscious, conscious, mm. unconscious mm -hmm. as a method of individuating. But there's this notion of like Hermes being sort of the god of trade because there's this mediating between yeah. merchant customer, merchant right, customer. Right. Um, there's sort of a god of sexual intercourse mm -hmm. because it's like this sort of mediating between male and female genitalia kind of like coming together sure. and merging into one being, the child. Mm. Um, so you can see that this could be interpreted in all these different ways. Um, like I said, you know, the golden shadow, the idea of like going to the unconscious, integrating back up into the conscious, going to the unconscious, there's sort of that mediation. You can think of the hero's journey in this way, right? We brought this up before. So the hero goes from the known world into the unworld, back to the known world, mm. and back to the uh, unknown world. Mm -hmm. And he's doing this cyclical yeah. back and forth yeah. from, from home to the dragon's lair, from home to dragon's lair. Yeah. And that's actually the, the pattern of growth. So you can see Hermes is going to be projected onto all these different ideas of liminality mm. and traveling between the two. Yeah. The imagery is incredibly prevalent in alchemy where mm. the conjunctio, the, the conjunction, the, the union between two opposing principles um, come together so that you'll see in 
um, a lot of the emblems, someone who looks half male and half female, but mm -hmm. they're joined together. And maybe in the previous emblem, they were separate. Like maybe you had the solar king, um, who's often dressed in red or has like a sun around him and you have the lunar queen who might be dressed in white and they're the, you know, somewhere early in the development of the alchemical process. And then there's a, a joining of those opposing principles yeah. and that union, that conjunction is key to the hermetic art. Hermes, AKA, yeah. because it's the blending of the realms that seem to naturally oppose each other yet are actually in relationship, you know? So right. it's, it's the yin and yang, you know, it's, right. um, it's matter and spirit, the, the, the core essence of what alchemy is really trying to explore, which is the relationship between concrete matter and like this more inner divine spiritual essence is that same type of polarity, but the idea is to join them together in harmony right. And the movement between that, the ability to um, to transfer yourself from one area to another, to move between worlds, I think is a, is key to why Hermes slash Thoth is such a a central figure in alchemy. It, it's that at its core, and it's that liminality that Hermes expresses in both the Greek mythological sense, but also in all these other different ways. Right. Um, before before we move on to talking about sort of uh, the Hermetica and because you're, you're touching upon the occult sort of with alchemy, um, et cetera, um, the sort of uh, the shape shifting nature of Hermes mm -hmm. and sort of so like in in the, the Marvel Universe, Loki, for instance, Trickster, he's a shapeshifter. Yeah. He can change form. Yeah. And the idea that he changes between like man and woman mm -hmm. in this most recent series is part of like this interesting trickster dynamic that you're discussing. Yeah. Also Loki from like, um, Norse mythology is also like, he turns into a woman, like he turns into like a female horse mm. and then like has sex with a male horse mm -hmm. and then like gives birth to, uh, I think Odin's horse, which is like the eight legged mm -hmm. horse or I don't, I don't know Norse mythology that well, but anyways, he's sort of morphing into different figures and he yeah. morphs into female figures at some point. Yeah. And even, uh, you know, in a more literal um, interpretation of this, a lot of trickster figures that we sort of have in our culture and our society are very androgynous. Mm. You can think of even like David Bowie is like a very androgynous figure. Oh, okay. This is and interesting. He has kind of like this sort of trickstery archetype about him. Well, he also like blends things together, not just yeah. like this, this expression of masculine and feminine, but just like looking at his music, yeah. how different it was, how revolutionary it was. Yeah. And he, especially across his like entire career, I think blended things in a way that was so unique and really transformational. Right. Yeah. Right. And sort of that blending, that kind of straddling the middle. Yeah. For instance, being like a man who sort of dresses like a woman does. Because mm -hmm. I, th I think David Billy would like do things like he would just like wear like, dresses around like in his like early career. Mm. And, you know, grow his hair really long. Yeah. And there's kind of notion wear of makeup. like. It's like, well, wait, you can't, you're a man. You can't do that. Right. And it's like, it's like, but like, if you were a woman also, it's like, it's still like, well, okay, but you're not a woman. So it's like, this is weird coming into the middle of like the status quo is being messed with. Right. Especially like trickster. cultural context, you right. know, what's the rise of David Bowie early seventies, late, yeah. late sixties, yeah, maybe just barely. I think 69 of the earliest, you but know? Like he was, he was getting famous around 79, 72, right. I think. So it's like, what, what? Sorry, 71, 72. You know, culture and society didn't look the way it does now, where no, there's much not. more of this openness of expression yeah. and there's been a lot of change in the idea of gender roles or things like that. Yeah. But a lot of those early artistic types, I think, paved the way for society to come into contact with something totally new. Right. And it's about the straddling of the realms. Right. Right. Messing yeah. with the status quo. Yeah. A lot of the early sort of rock and roll stuff that was going on in the 60s and 70s was kind of like rebelling against the structures mm. of society that yeah. say, you can't grow your hair long. Yeah. It's like, well, these rock stars are growing their hair long. It's like, <laughs> what are you true. doing? You can't. And so they're like, they're almost like, you know, even just like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Like they're kind of like these yeah, trickster characters. I was going to just say, like, look at the, okay, this is interesting because we, we, we really want to do like an episode or a live stream on the Beatles, but like, yeah, you think or, about or the band as an architect. Yeah. But you think about the evolution of the Beatles who started mm -hmm. out as like really like clean cut, yeah. you know, their nice bowl haircuts, their suits. Yeah. And but they were always very antagonistic. 
They were always oh, yeah. very tricksy. John Lennon especially. <laughs> which is like... Like, watch some interviews with them. Yeah. They're not... I mean, they were good boys, but really, I think, from pretty early on, I think what made them interesting, what really sort of shook things up is how how they would push back. You know, you, you watch them in these interviews and they're answering in ways that are just kind of like, they're acting kind of like assholes, honestly, totally. or they're making fun of the situation that right. they're in. Yeah. And, and, and so they have like a verbal communication of mm-hmm. what they're doing. That's very trickstery. And then you have the evolution of their music, which went from not even being music that they wrote to totally transforming what rock music even is. Yeah. And the image too. Anyways, I should stop there because I could keep going. But yeah, the point is like they're sort of a <laughs> rebelling against the status quo, right. and like you know the older generations would might wag their finger and be like, "You can't do that!" Right. Like, but that's the whole point. And and they this rebelling against what is considered to be the way things are, the way yeah. things should be, right. what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Mm. I mean, that's like the '60s onward. True. So it's like yeah. the 20th century has this like this huge like hermetic. Um, kind of shift mm. in which like it's like very liminal 60s are sort of disrupting what's traditional and what's considered okay yeah and there's danger in that and that's like why you know we're making so many connections here which i think is really interesting but like that's why the trickster um is good because he's sort of disrupting things and leading to all these insights yeah 60s is this explosion of new ideas new knowledge and a lot of it's really powerful really beautiful but also a lot of it goes way too far and it can be so destructuring so eroding to Mm. the to the structure that things just collapse into like this horrible mess right and so the trickster in shadow let's say if you're yeah. too trickstery yeah, yeah. you become like the joker mm, right and okay. the joker's like just wants to watch the world burn <laughs> right so it's like yeah. there's like a shadow side of the trickster right. of like it's not always because great he, he's to be a dancing trickster. with chaos yeah that's part of one of the realms that he straddles it's like here's order here's what's normal here's what is uh, agreed upon time to shake things up it's like how do you do that you open the floodgates you know right. you let the animal loose right. you uh pull the veil up yeah. and that chaotic aspect you have to mediate that the same goes for personal work yeah. it's like i think that's why the trickster is so powerful as a figure of depth psychology yeah. as well it's because you kind of have to embody the trickster or allow that in to entertain these ideas that have been in shadow or yeah. that have been so unconscious in your life yet if you open the floodgates of the unconscious it's like what happens like you feel like you're drowning it's like solutio it's the flood myth i am just being overwhelmed right. you know or everything gets burned down too quickly yeah so that mediating right so highly important to this but it, it can be really difficult to navigate because yeah. it's powerful it's a really powerful archetype yeah I and mean, you can see it on the collective societal level too i mean like you know you want to look at like the uh the Bolshevik revolution in Russia in like, you know, 1918, it's like, that's like a revolutionary change that you could say is sort of like, well, it's like the sixties, like just like taking down like the old structure, but it's like millions of people died in that revolution and the decades that followed as a result Mm. of like tearing down the structure. Right. It's like, it's not always good. Right. You can, you can think of the trickster. You're at a party, someone, pulls out a squirt gun and it's like squirting people and people are like oh stop it like and it's like kind of funny it's like trickstery and it's like actually it's like oh people are actually lighting up and having more fun now like everyone's busting out squirt guns now but you could also (laughs) imagine someone coming with like uh you know like a a fire hose connected to a fire hydrant outside and be like hey guys like blasting people and like actually like maybe like injuring people with all the water yeah it's like is that still trickstery yeah it's like no it's just destructive right so there's like a fine line that balance between loosening things up shaking things up and actually just causing things to collapse yeah be careful about yeah i think before we close out today Mm -hmm. i would want to talk to you a little bit about what it feels like to be in touch with and to embody some aspects of the trickster because i think that is something of all the people that i know Mm -hmm. you have pretty prevalent strong trickster tendencies yeah for sure and you know what is it what does it feel like for you what is when does it come out the most yeah i mean it probably doesn't come out too strongly over the podcast like this over the internet but probably probably a little bit um and this episode's kind of morphed into a conversation about the trickster (laughs) yes and sort of (laughs) departed away from hermes but it's all connected it is um so there's different aspects of my personality that are clearly 
or obviously all related because they're all in me, but there is a deep yearning for truth and deep yearning for beauty and deep yearning for what's real. Mm. And that's sort of like a more sort of conscious in control version of me. Yeah. But along with that, and I, I don't think it's a different thing, but it's, it's related to it. There is a huge trickster version of me that just instinctually wants to, to go into social scenes and shake them up mm. and do things that are kind of silly and over the top and absurd yeah. and be kind of unacceptable or mess with what's considered polite. Yeah. And usually, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's like virtuous all the time, you know, yeah. doing stuff like, like going streaking, for instance, is like something I've like done a lot. And I did that a lot in college because I just, I thought it was like so hilarious to like <laughs> run through someone's like dorm hall, like completely naked. And they're just like, what the, f-? you know, like they watch someone go by <laughs> and it's just like, it was just funny to me. Yeah. And there is this kind of like messing with the rules. Mm. Like that's not acceptable, but at the same time, like it's kind of funny and people like think it's kind of like people are like lightening up because of this. Right. Or, um, you know, doing things like uh, going around and just like messing with people at a party to get them to lighten up mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, putting things in their pockets that aren't supposed to be there mm-hmm. or something or yeah. um, dancing, being the first person to start dancing and dancing in a really ridiculous way to like a really ridiculous song. Yeah. Um, I think there's a way that I see your tricksteriness mm-hmm. that combines like the really powerful thinking function that you have, that it's like the mind trick yeah. that you'll play on people mm-hmm. or the way in which you'll present something that's forcing them to see it in a way that they yeah. either really didn't want to see it or yeah. didn't realize and how that passes that boundary into probably some uncomfortable or shadowy territory. Right. But it can be so revelatory. It can be revelatory. And there is, there is the instinct to provide people with with a revelation or an right. insight or wisdom like wake up mm-hmm. like the trickster mm-hmm. wants to wake you up yeah yeah um it can go too far and i've said this before is like there are times because like, the trickster comes out very easily when i'm drinking and there are times when i drink way too much and mm-hmm. the trickster actually just becomes like really really difficult and annoying for people right. yeah where it's like aren't like this isn't funny anymore yeah. and like no one's having a good time anymore. Like True, you, need, like, you need to calm down. Dark shadow yeah. valence trickster army. Right. And it's never like, it's never like destructive or anything, but it's still kind of no. like, it's, it's shaking things up so much that people are actually getting like really annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Annoyed. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's just, it's, it's all, it's all interrelated. The wisdom, the tricksteriness and the diving into the unconscious. Mm. I mean, the, the the way that we're exploring the shadow, I'm deeply interested in that. There is sort yeah. of, and that's kind of like the Hermes figure is kind of like the the truth, the tricksteriness, and the connection to the underworld. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all three of those things are actually intertwined. Yeah. They're sort of in one package, depending yeah. on like the valence of mm-hmm. the archetype at any given moment. Yeah. So do you feel that the more that we explore, the more that you've explored this idea of Hermes, that you've felt that affinity towards him, that connection because I, I think maybe we haven't really gone into this very much but there's also this very apollonian aspect yeah of you but that's like that's the, the conscious side of me right yeah and that's, that's the side of me that i more readily identify with right, which is Apollo. like truth light beauty art sensitivity art, all these things yeah. um it's like i'm apollo but at the same time it's like no you're, you're only apollo some of the time mm-hmm. and there's like another side of you that's like very hermes yeah and there's another side of you that's like very Lucifer, like, you know, <laughs> but Luc- Lucifer, the Luciferian principle is also very trickstery. Absolutely. It's also this aspect that really kind of reveals or wanted to change things up mm-hmm. or challenge the status quo. Yeah. And we don't, we don't see that as much with Hermes as a figure that he's just like going against Zeus. In fact, he's in line with that principle of like the, the God of gods. He's his herald. He's kind of working, um, in in conjunction with him, but there's all these other ways that I think Hermes uh, presses those uncomfortable boundaries and and uh, allows things to be shaken up. So it's it's helpful to sort of trace the other types of figures that relate to this because the nature is there, um, mm-hmm. and Hermes really does kind of, as we've talked about this entire episode, just scale all of these different, really dynamic, really interesting. Um, areas and I think 
his ability to tap into anywhere from like the underworld and the crossing of souls to flocks and shepherds and thieves and commerce, it, it speaks to the liminality of him, you know, because they're pretty yeah. disparate. And some of the other ones with other gods are like, they're the connections like a little bit more linear, I would say. Yeah. But um, Hermes especially, I think just brings a lot of color and, you know, dynamic psychological and symbolic essence to the pantheon. Um, so Hermes, you know, how do we see him in our life? How can you embody him more? You know, how can you read those stories and understand it and sort of invite that in? I think it's important to contemplate that nature of the psychopomp, of the trickster, mm -hmm. of the one who's mediating, um, but also his more grounded aspects. I, I think as a, a structure, as like a map, he offers us a lot to consider in our lives and in ways in which we can invite in these aspects that are bringing depth and transformation. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.